Greetings, listeners. Welcome to the Cold Fusion Now podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in the science, engineering, and business of Cold Fusion Leonard. I'm your host, Ruby Carrot. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Edmund Storms, a nuclear chemist and former Los Alamos National Lab scientist who's been researching Cold Fusion Leonard since 1989. Dr. Storms is widely considered one of the foremost researchers in the field. In May 1993, he was invited to testify before a congressional committee about the cold fusion effect. In 1998, Wired magazine honored him as one of the 25 people in the U.S., along with Michael McCubre, who's making a significant contribution to new ideas. He was awarded the Preparata Medal by the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science and the Distinguished Science Award by the University of Missouri. He has written over 100 papers and several surveys of the CMNS field, as well as written several books, including The Science of Low-Energy Nuclear Reaction, a survey of the field through 2007, and the Explanation of Low-Energy Nuclear Reaction, a comprehensive compilation of evidence and explanations about cold fusion, describing the top contenders for a Leonard theory, as well as providing a new model of the reaction derived solely from the physical evidence. He's currently doing experimental work with Kiva Labs. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Edmund Storms. Well, thank you, Ruby. Because that sounds fairly impressive even to me. <laughs> well, um, you have just published a review and compilation of your research from 1989 through 2015. It was conducted by Thomas Grimshaw of the Energy Institute at University of Texas, Austin. And it's essentially an outline of your Lenner work, minus the actual data. Uh, can you talk about the purpose of this documentation project and what was that process like of having him go through and amass all of this material? Well, it was a, a revelation to me. Um, I, you know, when you're working in the in the lab, you're taking notes and, and you're taking data and you're writing it up and, and you're make, trying to make sense of it. And time goes by and after a while you've accumulated a huge amount of information that you've ignored to a large degree, either because it didn't answer a question or possibly it was important and you wrote it up as a paper and then went on. Well, that accumulated uh, over many, many years, and it was particularly awkward because I'm a single researcher. I don't have a secretary. I don't have people that would follow me around and pick up after me uh, in terms of the data that I that I get. And so it, it was in a somewhat in a form that was rather difficult to make sense of. And Tom realized and made me realize that there may be some uh, nuggets of gold buried in, in this, these tailings piles that I, I have left behind. So he persuaded me to go back through all the notebooks and all the written documents and organize them chronologically 
and then gradually organize them in terms of the kind of information that I was getting to see if it was possible to find something that I missed. And, and it's all, always true that when you're doing research, you're doing it in the context of what you know at the time. But over a period of time, your understanding changes and it improves. And if you don't go back and look at what you had gotten from nature in the past and reevaluate it, that new knowledge is not really being put to good use. So the idea was, based upon what we understand today, go back through and see if something that I saw in the past and, and ignored because I didn't understand it might be understandable today. And, and that's really valuable for anybody in science to do. And many times you don't have a friend like Tom to encourage you to do it because it's a lot of work. <laughs> and it really, um, hope, hopefully, you always have to make a choice as to where your time is most valuable. Is it most valuable in discovering new things, or is it most valuable going back and looking at what you discovered in the past and, and making something of it? And I always looked upon my time being more valuable and trying to find new things. But this field is particularly frustrating in that new ideas, new information doesn't come very fast. So it became almost practical to go back through and see whether there was something missed in this huge collection of data. So that, hmm. that's how it came about. Hmm. I guess this, has, this project has really just finished. You probably haven't been able to really get through looking at it yet. Is that correct? Well, yes, that's partly correct. I've, I've gone back through, especially the uh, written documents. I mean, periodically I would write up a report, a monthly report, or or a paper or a summary. And in that context, the information makes a good deal more sense uh, looking at it now than does the primary data that, on which that's based. Usually primary data is almost incomprehensible uh, once you leave it for a while. And so it's absolutely critical to put it into a written form, uh, describing it as, as, as you would have in a paper. So I've gone back through those um, reviews and, and reread them and came away rather impressed that yeah, I've been seeing this phenomena happen periodically. Uh, never enough to uh, impress the funders sufficient for them to uh, say, "Okay, here's a million dollars," and and you know, start doing it right. Uh, it was just only just enough to suck me in, to keep me uh, interested to keep them interested up to a point. And then many of them then lost patience and said, well, you know, I'm not going to make any money out of this. And then they would go away. And somebody else would come and say, okay, let's see what you've got. And then we would find these little nuggets, never the, never the, um, the ore body. We always find <laughs> nuggets of gold here and there. And, yeah, nuggets are great, and they keep you looking, but that's not what pays the bills. And as a result, 
interest gradually dies if you can't find the gold ore body. And and that's been incredibly difficult. Most of the work that you've done uh, has been experimental. Let's talk about some of the observations that you have made and also, what are the basic experimental observations that the Leonard Field has generated? Let's make a slight distinction between experimental work and theoretical work. It's true, I'm not a theoretician. And, and see, a theoretician is defined by somebody um, who looks at some imaginary view of the world and then tries to find justification for that view. In other words, they start with a with a notion that's based upon some kind of uh, previous understanding, you know, maybe quantum mechanics, it might be thermodynamics or whatever. It's a view of the world that they accept as being real and then they ask, well, what does that how can we prove that by looking at the way nature beha- behaves? I take it the opposite view. I look at how nature behaves, and then I ask myself, how can I explain that? And so from my point of view, I arrive at a better description of nature than they do, because I don't start with imagination. I start with what nature is telling me it is doing, and and then try to figure out what that means in terms of more or less conventional ideas. So my uh, efforts have been to use those theoretical, by my definition, guides to figure out how to make the experiment work better. And that's what everybody's doing, in fact. And so it's a race. Uh, It's a competition. It's a contest between these various concepts is which one will be most effective in figuring out how to make this work in a, in a reproducible and, and with, with a large magnitude so it can be practical. Mm-hmm. And uh, it isn't clear that, that anybody's winning that race at this point. The two issues are involved. The one issue is is this a real phenomena? And, and that's been a handicap that we've had to deal with because uh, the powers that be came, came to the conclusion early on that it wasn't real. And so many of us who saw that it was real had to continue pretty much uh, at, at low key paying for a lot of it ourselves. Well, over the last 30 years, we've accumulated a, a huge amount of information which shows that it is in fact real. But now the problem is the people who uh, have money say, okay, it's real, but how can we make it big enough that we can make a buck out of it and it will be technologically important? And that's the big challenge right now, how to make it occur at a high enough rate so that it can actually be a value uh, technologically to the world as an energy source. Well, the problem there is that you cannot figure out how this works if you only accept it working perfectly as a proof of 
it's worth looking at. I mean, it's sort of like asking uh, the Wright brothers to fly across the Atlantic before you would accept the fact that they had flown a few hundred feet at Kitty Hawk. You know, you have to start small. You have to start very inefficient and almost at a trivial level. And that's where, in fact, we are right now. But the money people, the people who could support this, especially governments, are not interested in basic research. They want to see to it that it actually works at a high level. And so that's the, the conflict that we have right now. And it's a conflict that I'm experiencing personally because you know, I know ways that I can make it work on a small scale, but unless I have support to look at this with tools and instruments that I can't afford, I don't know what's happening. And so, therefore, I cannot make it happen on a, on a regular basis. You know, we are approaching the 30-year mark for this th- field, uh, and yet the clear evidence of Leonard that you've cited is still not accepted by mainstream science. Why has the mainstream scientists, who are generally open to new ideas and research, why have they ignored this for so long, and what will it take for mainstream scientists to get involved? Well, I think there's two answers to that question. The one one answer is uh, psychological, and the other one has to do with economic self-interest. The psychological comes about because they, the mainline, most scientists were told very, very clearly that this was nonsense by authority, mostly the DOE. And once they heard that and accepted it, they paid no attention to anything that went on thereafter. Uh, it's hard to get information, in fact, unless you look for it. If you're a scientist and you, you're reading the normal scientific journals that apply to your field, you won't read any papers about cold fusion. If you go on the, you know, read the newspaper or if you read magazines, popular magazines about science like Scientific American, you won't read anything about cold fusion. So for the, from the point of view of most scientists, it doesn't exist. It, it because nobody's interested in it, nobody's talking about it. The other uh, issue has to do with economic self-interest. People in the conventional energy industry, oil, gas, nuclear, coal, these people early on, many of the big com- companies, investigated cold fusion to find out whether or not it was a, a, a could be a competitor. And they discovered, yeah, it was real. They they got positive results. And their attitude was twofold. One was, okay, if somebody figures out how it works, we'll just simply buy them out, and and then we'll be the owners of that particular uh, energy source. And the other was, well, if this gets real and sort of gets out of hand, we're toast because nobody will want to buy uh, energy from gas or oil or nuclear when you can buy it far cheaper and, and with greater safety using the cold fusion process. So they were perfectly happy to support the idea 
that this was nonsense because that kept anybody from figuring it out and thereby becoming competitors to them. So we have those two things happening in the world simultaneously. Now, the people, those of us who know that it's real and have the evidence, have to somehow or another figure out how to get that information into the minds of the general public so that then they will persuade people, particularly the government, to put money into further research. And what you're doing with the podcast here is a perfect example of how this has to be done. And we're hoping that every little bit helps and, and will be successful in, in causing people to get interested because the information is available. I mean, if you look, if you go on the Internet and type in LENR or cold fusion, you will be overwhelmed with information about the subject. But you have, have to take the initiative to do that. It's not going to come to you automatically. Uh, I, you know, I want to get to how we can figure this reaction out and talk about some theory right after this. Mark your calendars for the 2019 Lanner CF Colloquium at MIT, happening this March 23rd and 24th, 2019, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, U.S., on the 30th anniversary of the announcement of Cold Fusion. For more information and registration, go to the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science website at iscmns.org. The 22nd International Conference on Condensed Matter Nuclear Science, ICCF 22, will be held this September 8th through 15th, 2019, in Assisi, Italy. For more information as it becomes available, go to the International Society of Condensed Matter Nuclear Science website at iscmns.org. And we're back with Lenner researcher Dr. Edmund Storms talking about Lenner theory. Now, Dr. Storms, there's a number of theories out there that seek to describe this reaction. And so far, no definitive theory has been achieved. Can you tell us why are there so many different theories and why do theoreticians have such problems coming to agreement? Well, the, there's two issues. The one issue is that the human imagination has no limits. And people, especially creative people, love to use that skill that their minds have. They, they love to think up new ideas, and they love to put them out there, and they love to, to talk about them. That, that is sort of the nature of, of art and science and medicine. Um, it, it's not just trying to find something. It's not just trying to to uh, describe something. There is a personal benefit that comes from being creative. And so people will come up with all these crazy ideas just to satisfy that uh, demand of, of their nature. The, the other problem is that cold fusion truly is unusual. It, it deviates significantly from how conventional explanations of nuclear interaction 
what, what, what they would predict. Uh, it, it, it does not lend itself to an easy description. And so, therefore, there's a lot of room for imagine, imagination to be applied. Now, to make matters worse, nuclear interaction in the past has always avoided or found unnecessary any kind of chemical consideration. For example, the, the fission reactor in, in a, that makes power by the normal fissioning technique that we use now to get nuclear power, the chemical environment that the uranium finds itself in plays no role at all in the nuclear process. It has an effect on how many neutrons might be absorbed, but that's a secondary effect. It does not affect the nuclear process itself. The same way with hot fusion. Hot fusion takes place in a plasma, which has no chemical characteristics. It, it is a state of matter that's totally independent of chemistry. So people who are trying to figure out nuclear interaction are forced to uh, think differently because the cold fusion reaction occurs only in a chemical reaction, a chemical environment. It, it occurs only with respect to the chemistry of that environment. It, it is totally dependent upon the nature of a chemical structure. And so people have a hard time, especially people who think in terms of conventional nuclear interaction, getting that idea into their head. So a lot of the theories focus on the nuclear process and totally ignore the condition in which the nuclear process has to take place. And so that creates uh, two kinds of theory. One kind is focusing only on the nuclear mechanism and avoiding the environment in which that has to take place. And the other is trying to figure out what that environment is. And I fall into the latter category. I'm trying to understand the environment and not the nuclear process. But that because we have those two kinds of environment, two kinds of mechanism, two kinds of consideration, that gives a huge uh, landscape into which people can apply their imagination. So you quite naturally <laughs> end up with a, with a whole bunch of theories, and and you can't tell which one's right or wrong yet, uh, or at least I can, but a lot of people can't, um, because we don't have enough information about the process. <clears throat> We're only beginning to get a, a a a clue as to how it works, and so. If you apply those clues cleverly and with a little bit of arbit uh, being a bit arbitrary, you can eliminate a lot of the proposed theories, but not all of them. And many people who have a theory aren't interested in doing that because it's very likely that their theory will be the one that goes down in flames. So they're not. So, so you don't have a lot of incentive for people to figure out which one's right and which one's wrong at this point. 
So what theoreticians are trying to do, or, or some of them are trying to do, is find the conditions in a chemical environment that will allow a nuclear reaction to occur. And I know that there's been some interest in uh, the idea of superabundant vacancies. That is a chemical condition that some believe can initiate this reaction. What do you feel superabundant vacancies have to do with this reaction? Well, this is a very technical idea. And to be upfront and answer your question directly without going into detail, I think that superabundant vacancies have absolutely no relationship to cold fusion. Now, having said that, the question is, why are people proposing this and, and what are the other possibilities? It's very obvious that some unusual characteristic of a material has to exist in which the nuclear reaction will occur. And those that particular condition is rarely formed. Uh, and that's what makes it so difficult to reproduce <clears throat> because it's really very difficult to create that unique condition uh, on purpose, especially if you don't know what it is. So there's a number of conditions that would qualify uh, vacancies, that is the absence of an atom, is one of them. Uh, and I believe that another one that's more likely are cracks, that is gaps in the structure of a critical dimension. But other people have suggested uh, various flaws uh, in the lattice of which there are, are several different kinds as being where that might happen, or, or even where certain atoms are present that might attract uh, the ability. So the superabundant vacancy comes about because those people who favor the idea of a vacancy as a concept find the superabundant vacancy idea particularly attractive because it contains lots of vacancies. And it has a characteristic uh, that is a difficulty in, in, in creation that would fit in with the difficulty in making cold fusion work. Furthermore, um, Peter Hickelstein, who is a firm advocate of the vacancy idea, has a very complicated and highly mathematical description of how a vacancy would achieve a, a nuclear reaction. And so he and the followers of his particular view are very uh, encouraged by having possible a possible reality or a possible description or the possible creation of something that has even more vacancies in it than you would normally have. What is the problem that you see with the idea of vacancies as the chemical environment for which this nuclear reaction takes place? Well, vacancies are a characteristic of all materials. And, but some materials have 
the ability to make vacancies of a certain kind, and other materials have a, a favor other kinds of vacancies. <clears throat> and, and the concept of a vacancy is a little ambiguous also, because in the palladium deuteride, which is the material that is most studied and has the most information, there's two kinds of vacancies. There's a vacancy in the deuterium, where the deuterium can be, in other words, there, there are positions where it will be, and there are positions where it should be, and the position that where it should be and it is not can be identified as a vacancy. But also, there can be vacancies in the palladium positions. So there will be positions that should have a palladium present, and they don't. Now, the number of vacancies in a material is sensitive to the thermodynamic properties of that material. And the thermodynamic properties are sensitive to temperature, pressure, and composition. So if vacancies were, in fact, where the action was, then it should be possible very conveniently and with foreknowledge create create them in palladium deuteride, because we know enough about palladium deuteride, its basic thermodynamic properties, its, its basic uh, uh, crystallographic properties, to know how to, 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 to create vacancies. That information does not allow you to initiate the cold fusion reaction. There doesn't seem to be any relationship whatsoever between the presence of vacancies, which can be determined, and whether or not you make excess energy. So there's no proof. There's, there's no feedback from nature to, to show you that that particular viewpoint's correct. Now, what's worse is that the cold fusion reaction has been found to occur in a variety of materials, not just palladium deuteride. And mm -hmm. those materials have an entirely different ability and characteristic uh, ability to make vacancies and the characteristics of those vacancies. Yet, those vacancies seem to have no relationship to the ones in the, uh, in the palladium deuteride, and yet we still see the same nuclear effect. So there is not a, a correlation uh, shown between the various material relating the effect of LENR on the, behavior, the presence of vacancies. So there's no, there's no correlation in the evidence. So that's why I, I reject the idea of vacancies. It, it just simply does not fit with the way in which this effect behaves. On the other hand, one characteristic that is universal and would fit, and that is cracks or gaps in the structure. Those are totally universal, and increasingly it's possible to make a correlation between their presence and absence. So that's where I focus my attention. Well, let's talk about that, because in more recent years, you've put a model of this reaction together, and I actually made a documentary called Hydroton about your model, which listeners can find on our Cold Fusion Now YouTube page. Uh, what happened in your thinking to cause you to begin actively theorizing? And can you describe in easy layman's terms 
your idea of how the nanocracks can initiate a reaction? Well, I needed a guide to figure out what I needed to do to a material to encourage it to produce the LNR, the nuclear effect. And so I looked around at the various uh, suggested unique features of a material and trying to figure out which one might be the one that's important. And after a considerable amount of trial and error and thinking and, and logical deduction, I came to the conclusion that the only feature that seemed to make any sense were these cracks. And then the question is, well, what would happen if such a crack formed? What would be the consequence from the, from the atom's point of view? And it became clear that the atom would try to go into these cracks, try to fill them, and there would be a relationship, chemical relationship, created between the deuterons that then proceeded to occupy this crack. And then the question is, well, what would that interaction do from a nuclear point of view? Once again, logic came to my rescue. I was encouraged to believe that once this chemical structure formed, and which would be described as a linear molecule of deuterons stuck together one after another, that this would start to resonate. And that resonance would move the nuclei closer together periodically. And in that motion, that is, as that distance shorted, the molecule, or more precisely, the nuclei in the molecule, would suddenly discover that perhaps they were on the way to a fusion reaction. Not all the way, but they were. there was a possibility that energy could be released from their nucleus uh, if they just simply did a couple of little things that we don't understand at this point. And so I imagined that the energy, as this resonated, would be given off in small bits, not all at once as it is in hot fusion. There, the energy is, the fusion takes place and instantaneously the energy goes off. In cold fusion, the energy would go off slowly. I, I described it one as being fast fusion and this being slow fusion. And slow fusion, of course, was overlooked because everybody was applying energy to make fusion happen, which automatically caused it to be fast. And therefore, the possibility of it being slow, slow was never explored. But within this small gap and within this molecule, this new mechanism could exert itself. And so I imagine that that resonant process would initiate a kind of nuclear interaction that has never been seen before. That, that that particular kind of interaction has been overlooked. Nature can do it. It's always been there. But we've never had the right conditions for it to manifest itself. So, and then that's where the big discovery is, because that's a new phenomenon of nature. It isn't just a fusion reaction that might be a good source of energy. This is an entirely new kind of nuclear interaction, which once understood, of course, will be uh, rewarded by a Nobel Prize, no doubt. But that's, that's, that's where my thinking went. And at this point, I do not know how to describe, nor does anybody else know how to describe this mathematically in a way that would make it acceptable to conventional science. Mm -hmm. So what you're describing is 
a chemical environment of nanocracks, which you find is common to all materials that that host the Lenner reaction, correct? That's correct. And in this nanocrack, you have a linear array, the, the deuterium, let's say, gets in the crack, and it's so small that it, it can only fit in and make a line if you get a bunch of deuteriums in there. And these deuterium, or if it's, if it's using light hydrogen, we would have to say protons as well, uh, then resonates. And so the nuclei get alternately closer and then farther apart. And as they get closer, they feel as though they're on a fusion reaction and they lose a tiny bit of mass. And this is the slow fusion that you're describing, where the mass is lost bit by bit in tiny amounts. How does that mass, how is the mass turned into energy? Is What type of energy? Because the cold fusion reaction makes heat and transmutations. Well, I believe the uh, mass is converted to energy, and the energy appears as a photon of of a frequency of of a wavelength or or of an energy, which is not as large as a normal nuclear reaction would produce. But it's large enough that the energy contained in that photon is able to move away from the source and is deposited is turned into heat as it passes through matter further away uh, someplace in the apparatus. Then, uh, and two of them, I mean, as the two atoms come together, a photon, two photons are given off in opposite directions to conserve momentum. But nevertheless, these photons then leave that site, pass through the matter that surrounds that site, and is slowly converted into heat as it is as the photons are absorbed by the surrounding matter by mm-hmm. conventional methods. I mean, we we know precisely how the energy of a photon is converted into heat as it passes through matter. Mm-hmm. That that's well known. And these photons are no different than any other photon, and so they just simply pass through matter, and they lose their energy uh, as that that photon energy is converted to heat energy, which is called a phonon. But the energy of the photons is not sufficient for them to get very far. They can't get outside the apparatus. And so people with their counters on the outside of the calorimeter don't see anything because they're all being absorbed before they can get to the detector. Now, some of them have sufficient energy to get to the detector, and they are detected. So a little bit of radiation is, in fact, seen, but it's not nearly enough to explain the amount of heat that's being given off. And I argue that that's because 99% of the photons that are made are absorbed before they can get outside to the detector. If you could measure the amount of heat that the cell is making, can you then say, well, that's a certain number of photons, and then determine characteristics about the reaction that way? 
Well, you can in principle if you know something in addition. You have to know either the energy of the photon, because the higher the energy of each photon, the fewer photons you have to have to make the same amount of heat. So you have two variables that you have to know. One is the number of photons, and you have to know the energy of each one. So we don't know their energy at this point. We know there's a limit. We know how we know the upper limit. We know that they have to be less energetic than a certain value, because if they were more energetic than that, that, than that value, they, they would get outside the apparatus and could be detected. So they're probably in the neighborhood of a few, uh, well, maybe 10 keV, somewhere in that neighborhood. If they were very much more energetic than that, they would be detectable. One of the other unique phenomenon of Lenner is transmutations. And many researchers have discovered transmutations from a fusion reaction and transmutations that one might see from a fission reaction. Can you explain that type of result with your idea? Well, I believe that the uh, this molecule, this linear molecule, this hydroton, can also attach itself to other atoms that happen to be nearby, uh, impurity atoms that happen to be out of place, for example, that might be hanging out in the crack along with other debris. And when the fusion reaction takes place, <clears throat> those other nuclei that are attached chemically to the hydroton experience the same kind of ambiguity about their nuclear state. And so there could very well be the energy that is being generated by the fusion reaction can be redirected to force one or more of these hydrogen nuclei into the nuclei of this attached atom. So what, what is measured is really fascinating. What is measured uh, is a spectrum of nuclei that were not present initially. I mean, normally you have palladium and some platinum in, in the material. But after the LNR reaction has occurred after a period of time, you get a bunch of other elements that are, uh, there are a couple that are more, he that are heavier than palladium, obviously something's gone in and stayed there. But most of the nuclear products are lighter. And it turns out that you can identify these two of these products that add up to equal the weight, that is the mass and the atomic number. In other words, they have the right number of protons and neutrons, as did the original atom from which they came. In other words, it looks very much like one or more hydrogen nuclei go into palladium, for example. The resulting nucleus is unstable, and it splits into two smaller, not equal, but two smaller uh, nuclei that contain the necessary neutrons and protons from the original material. 
And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating that this is a combination of fusion and fission taking place simultaneously within the material. That's an entirely new concept in its own right. But I believe that it starts and it requires the fission reaction. I mean, it requires the fusion reaction to, to, to provide the energy to overcome the Coulomb barrier, which would stand in the way of such a thing happening normally. So you don't believe that there are multiple different types of Lenner reaction. You believe that there's one Lenner reaction that can create all these different types of phenomena and products. Yeah, put it in, in, putting it in a slightly different way, I say that there is a single phenomena which, when applied to different atoms, different nuclei, will allow a nuclear reaction to take place. But now the nuclear reactions that take place are different. For example, all of the hydrogen nuclei, protons, deuterons, and protons, all will fuse between themselves and between each other. The mechanism that causes that is common. It's the same mechanism. But the nuclear products of each of those reactions are different. And, and that's what complicates things. We have a variety of nuclear products which make it look as if there's different kind of nuclear reactions, which in fact there are. The question is, are they all being caused by the same phenomena, by the same basic mechanism? And that's what I believe is unique and what it has to happen. There's a single, unique, and very odd mechanism that can take place. Why do you believe it's a single mechanism? Simply because I think that nature would not go about creating a variety of mechanisms to cause something so extraordinary and so rare. And indeed, nature is known to be very stingy in finding the fewest number of ways of doing something and getting the job done. Uh, it's called Occam's razor when when uh, you, you want to use that particular description. It's the idea that the simplest is probably the more correct. One is a good deal simpler than two. Are you able to test your hydroton idea to determine if it's true? Well, I'm doing that um, to a large extent by trial and error, by um, <laughs> just trying this and that. I, I describe what I do as simply buying a lottery ticket and waiting uh, to win. And so uh, every once in a while, I will win a small prize, but so far I have not won the lottery. You don't know anything unless you can make it happen. I mean, negative results really aren't very useful because there are millions of ways that something can be made not to work. There might only be a couple of ways that are required to make it work. And so there's, if, if it doesn't work, you cannot identify which of the many ways caused the failure. There's just too many of them. But if it works, then you can start looking for the several ways that would make it work. And it works so seldom that the accumulated information well, accumulates very slowly. And only gradually, over 30 years, has a idea of a relationship between trial and error filled in my own mind. But that view is not shared very widely. 
Nevertheless, I keep trying just for that to see whether or not I can buy a, uh, a winning lottery ticket. And if that should happen, at that point, I would have the proof that you were asking for. What can be done now to take these ideas, all of these theoretical ideas, and start paring them down to come up with a synthesis? How do theorists proceed from here? Well, that's not possible. I mean, that's sort of like saying, how can we uh, get Muslims and Christians and, and Jews together and come up with a common religion? Oh. Uh, it, 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 uh, Darn it. It, it just simply, it just simply does not, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, theoreticians uh, are people who have their own uh, view of reality, and they're not about to change it just because somebody objects. So uh, that can't be done. What has to happen is that somebody with a theory that is closer to reality than most gets lucky, and they discover that by applying their particular viewpoint, they initiate the reaction fairly regularly or at least at a significant level. That gets the impre- that gets the attention of people with money. That gets the the access to various tools like high resolution scanning electron microscopes, so that it would then be possible to look into the material to find out what is actually happening. Not theoretical, but but based upon what can be seen w- with the eye. And then once the condition, the unique condition is identified, then it's possible to make more of it anytime you want. And that's what we're striving for at this point. We have to know what it is, but the only way of finding out what it is is to look with the right tools. And only a very few people have access to those tools. At ICCF 21, we got to see the varied theories that are being proposed to describe the Lenner reaction. It's my hope that at ICCF 22, we'll have a moderated panel discussion where some focused questions are posed to a group of theoreticians, and we come to some kind of a group answer. Do you think that that's impossible? Yes, I think it's impossible. Many of the other, I mean, for example, let's let's take the 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 uh, quantum mechanical, uh, the, the quantum mechanical theory uh, back in the early 1900s was in great dispute, and there was a great deal of discussion. Heisenberg and Einstein and and various other people who now are famous but were not so much so famous then had ideas that conflicted with other people's ideas. These people were part of a society, part of a organization, and also were friends. I mean, they interacted personally uh, on numerous occasions. And they were also incredibly smart. And so they put together an organization that would meet periodically and debate the conflicts between the various individuals. That worked because those individuals, their attitude, their training, and their intelligence 
made possible some kind of rational discussion. The cold fusion field does not have that. The cold fusion field, to a, I mean, I have to you know, be a little insulting to myself, but to a large extent, there are people who don't have a job elsewhere. It, it, the people who were in debating uh, quantum mechanics, they were professors, they were employed, they were famous, they, they, they had a job. They were engaged in really fundamental research. And so they, by their nature, had the skills to interact. Cold fusion field, because it's been rejected to a large extent, is not occupied by people of that kind. People of that kind are off doing their own thing. They're off teaching their own uh, ideas at university. They're in, 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 in companies doing possibly even hot fusion. I mean, there's a lot of really smart people doing hot fusion these days. They're not at all interested in talking about cold fusion. The people that are talking about cold fusion are the people that are not doing anything else very actively. And and even those who are involved, generally speaking, this is only a, a, a secondary uh, effort. They, they have a day job. They don't have the organization to engage in any kind of use, useful discussion. Now, discussion of of uh, experimental facts, that falls into a different category. There you don't get the personality involved. There you're just describing what you saw nature do. And maybe you get into a little bit of quarrel about how you interpret that, but basically that's not a reason for conflict between basic views of reality. And so those kinds of discussion would be worthwhile. And I think that having a discussion for example, uh, about the basic nature of palladium deuteride, because a good many of the people in the field have no understanding of what that material is like, what it, its behavior means. They, they just simply are working in a black box. So rather than talk about theory, I would say, let's have a discussion on the nature of palladium deuteride. What is this stuff? Why would you hope it to work? Why, what characteristics does it have that other materials do not have? And then after people get a good understanding of the nature of that material, possibly it will become clearer to people without any argument that maybe, you know, you know, maybe my theory doesn't apply to this because I thought this material was different than it apparently is. So I can see where my, my uh, theory doesn't apply. That might work. But trying to challenge the person's theory without that background knowledge, I, I think is hopeless. Well, perhaps we can get something like that going at ICCF 22 then. Yeah, that, that would be really worthwhile. I mean, one of the things that I keep pointing out is that every time you react palladium with deuterium or hydrogen or anything, and then remove it and then react it again, the material is changed. You don't have the same material. The characteristics are, are quite different. Thermodynamics, the shape, the size, the hardness, they're all different. And so how do you propose to study a moving target? 
Hmm. And people don't realize that. But they're they're not looking at something that is ideal as described in the literature. They're looking at a moving target. They're looking at material that is not the same every, each time they actually do something to it. And so unless they take that into account, they're never going to be able to figure out what's going on. Well, also, it's not just palladium deuterides, but, uh, of course, Andrea Rossi uh, popularized the idea of using nickel. So there's multiple types of metals that one can choose from to try experimenting with this reaction. Any any, uh, element that reacts with hydrogen seems to be, would qualify to support LNR. Uh, titanium uh, has been used. As you point out, nickel has been used. I'm quite, zirconium uh, has uh, been explored. I'm, I'm quite sure any of these elements uh, would work. And so the the big challenge then is to find out what it is about those hydrides that is unique that makes it possible for the nuclear reaction to be initiated. And Rossi found that nickel was important. Now, one of the big issues there is a certain amount of lack of of understanding of what Rossi did. Rossi identified nickel as being where the nuclear reaction was occurring, but that is actually not the material he was using initially. He was using a nickel catalyst. The nickel catalyst is not pure nickel. It's nickel that has been applied to some inert substrate. That's the way catalysts work. There, there is an active metal that can break the hydrogen bond, and then there is a, an inert substrate on which the hydrogen atoms can diffuse, causing what's called spillover hydrogen. And it's that spillover hydrogen that is active for the reaction, not the hydrogen in the nickel. But anyway... Uh, there's reason to think that the nickel might not be where the action is. For example, a case found that a catalyst made by depositing palladium in finely divided form on charcoal could be made nuclear active. And that was replicated by the Kubli. Now, people said, oh, okay, it's happening on the finely divided palladium. That's not necessarily true. It could also be happening in the charcoal. The charcoal cracks, I mean, look at it in a scanning electron microscope and you can see the cracks. All the charcoal has to do is allow hydrogen, being hydrogen atoms being generated at the palladium, to diffuse across its surface to find the crack where the nuclear reaction occurred. So there's no reason to believe that the nuclear reaction is occurring in the palladium itself. And likewise, the same kind of effect would occur in the Rossi material. So we have to be very careful in imagining where this nuclear reaction actually occurs. And then even in palladium, in the electrolytic, it only occurs very near the surface. And the surface of the palladium cathode is not pure palladium. It's a very complex alloy. Uh, it's also very complex metal, metal graphically. So there's a lot of stuff going on there that has absolutely no relationship whatsoever to how people imagine palladium to look. 
You know, it's very interesting. You just mentioned the less case experiment, which used the finely divided palladium applied to uh, charcoal, which I believe was made from coconuts. Right. I was actually reading Tom Grimshaw's documents in the review of your research, and I learned that you attempted to replicate that. Now, Les Case claimed to get quite a lot of heat out of his cell, and Michael McCubre and the team at SRI was able to replicate that and indeed was able to measure helium commensurate with that heat. But when you tried to replicate that, you were unable to do that. Why why do you think that they were able to do it and you weren't? Well, the, the fascinating thing is that it did not work for McCubre either initially. And, and it only worked when Case was brought to the laboratory, and Case showed McCubrey some techniques that he was not revealed before. And in fact, as he no. saw, were very proprietary. And so McCubrey initiated those techniques and thereafter was able to make excess energy. I did not know about those techniques when I tried to replicate. Now, the technique is obvious. Uh, the technique makes perfect sense. The, the technique that that Case uh, revealed was to take the catalyst, and, and the catalyst is what's called unreduced catalyst. That it is, the, it's, the material is not palladium. It's palladium chloride, which was deposited uh, on by vaporizing the water off of the solution. And so the charcoal was wet and had, had water absorbed to it, plus plain chloride on it. So what Case would do would be to seal this into the, uh, a, a metal container, heat the metal container up to 250 degrees, and then suddenly open the valve. <clears throat> when he did that, the high-pressure steam that was created would go away very, very quickly thereby depositing the palladium chloride onto the charcoal in very finely divided form. And then when the deuterium was put into this at temperature, the palladium chloride was reduced to palladium and the material became active. This is perfectly logic logical in terms of the way in which catalysts are treated and, and how they behave. But nobody thought to do it that way except case, and that was required for this to work. You, the initial palladium chloride was present in too large a uh, size uh, to be active. It had to be made in much smaller size, which that process did. So the the missing link was taking the lid off the container and letting the steam shoot out real quick. That was it. Right, right. And and what this does is cause the palladium chloride, which would be present uh, in a semi-liquid, to precipitate out in very finely divided form, suddenly. Mm. It wouldn't have time to come out 
and grow crystals of any significant size as were there initially. And so that was a technique for creating the active material, or at least chemically active material, in a, in a form that which, which was necessary. I mean, it probably also did some things to the charcoal. I mean, we have no idea. I mean, the, the charcoal is very complicated. I, I looked at it in my scanning electron microscope, and it contained all kinds of elements, as you would expect from a natural source. And, and this wasn't just any old charcoal either. This was charcoal from a particular uh, Pacific island, which was the only thing that worked. Once they no longer had that charcoal, Case could never get it to work again. So the charcoal was very important, and how the whole thing was treated was very important. Well, when I ran mine, I did not know about that treatment. If you analyzed the charcoal, couldn't you somehow find a way to reproduce that type of charcoal? If you if you saw the charcoal and you saw, oh, it's got these types of elements all mixed up together, couldn't you just make that kind of thing and use that? Well, no, and I don't think so, because these elements are present in very complex chemical structures. And you'd have, although you can identify the element, you have no way of knowing the chemical structure that it's in. And if the chemical structure is important, then of course you're denying yourself um, that condition. And obviously you can make charcoal out of any coconut, and but every <laughs> the source of the coconut determines the elements that are present. <laughs> so it, because it, it's far better to figure out how this works and what is absolutely critical without doing trial and error like we, we've had to do. Get it to work and then look inside with the tools that are now available to find out what is actually there. Well, Dr. Storms, I understand you're doing some experimental work at this time. Are you able to tell us what you're working on right now? Yeah, I'm working on palladium, and I'm doing various things to the palladium, trying to encourage a condition that I think might be the nuclear active ingredient. Uh, it's very clear that impurities are very important. When people have attempted to measure very pure palladium, they failed, and all of the palladium that has worked is uh, palladium that has identifiable impurities in it. The problem is we don't know what those impurities are doing, how they, how the, the true concentration or the true interaction. Now, from my point of view, if I want to make cracks, impurities are the way to do it. But because an impurity in a grain boundary makes the grain boundary weaker, and therefore more susceptible to cracking. But you don't want you you, you want the situation where you have a lot of little cracks not a few big cracks. Big cracks are, don't work, and, and big cracks actually prevent the, the formation of small cracks. So trying to get the material, encourage it to form a lot of little cracks is the challenge. And suitable impurities obviously is the way to go. But the number of impurities in their combination is close to infinity. So hitting the right combination by trial and error becomes <laughs> just a matter of luck. And like I say, I buy a ticket and see if I'm going to win the lottery. And then if I don't, I buy another ticket. 
We're approaching the 30 years of breakthrough research in this field. What are your thoughts going forward? Are you optimistic that we will find a solution? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic that a solution will be found. However, this particular phenomenon of nature is one of the more difficult ones to figure out. And it's, incredi- it's, it's difficult not only because it has no good theory behind it, it, has, it is not something that you can conveniently understand, but also it has this very negative rejection associated with it. There are individuals with a lot, a lot of money who have taken upon themselves to set up laboratories and are investigating. And I think that if they persist, sooner or later they will figure it out. And I know that this is happening in other countries. For example, Japan has a very active program that is making obvious uh, progress in understanding. Uh, We suspect that China has a program. And both of these countries have a great and huge incentive to figure out how this works. The United States, not so much. So, yeah, I think that it will either be figured out here by one of the laboratories funded by the super rich, or it will be uh, figured out by one of the countries that is desperate for energy. But sooner or later, it will be figured out. Where can people go if they want to learn more about your work? Well, the most obvious place is um, the, uh, the the website that, that you have, uh, Co-Fusion Now, uh, my website, but also the uh, LNR.org library that uh, uh, Jen Rothwell has put together and is maintaining is really extraordinary. It it has increasing uh, store of information about all aspects of cold fusion uh, and papers published about the subject. And so if you if you want to get the details of what's going on, that's the place to go. If you want to know more about the overall, go to Cold Fusion Now. Well, we hope that this is the year for breakthroughs. So best wishes with your research, and thank you for speaking with us today. Well, thank you very much, Ruby. You You are doing a great service because this is exactly the kind of uh, information and information uh, source of information that people need. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Edmund Storms, nuclear chemist and Leonard scientists, author of The Explanation of Leonard, a comprehensive compilation of evidence and explanations about cold fusion. You can find more of his work on his website at leonardexplained.com. That concludes our show for today. Remember, you can find more episodes of the Cold Fusion Now podcast on our website at coldfusionnow.org or subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Ruby Carrot.